Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. We'll start with our feedback segment, and I want to say thank you to those of you who heard the call to write in feedback and present it in a slightly different way. As a reminder, the, what we're trying to do with feedback is simply this. Most shows take their feedback, they read it on the air, they answer the questions they can get to, and the rest become discarded because there's not enough time to address every single question. The problem was, in 2017, I started the Ask Noah show precisely because I wanted to be a resource to the community and allow the community to solve their problems. And to the extent that I can answer those questions, I'm happy to do so. But what we found in our email segment is other users are way better at answering esoteric questions than, of course, I am, because I've I can't possibly know the answer to every question. But you, the community, do. And so what we're asking you to do, write in to live at asknoahshow.com. Steve Ovens then categorizes those emails, breaks them down into questions by topic, and directs the show. So we can present topics that we know reflect the questions that you, the listener, are asking. Nunix writes in and says, hey, no, it's Nunix. Just thought it would be worth reaching out and mentioning that while none of the victims of the SolarWinds Orion supply chain compromise can really be blamed for the situation they find themselves in. This really does illustrate a serious issue with things that are industry standard or having homogeneous deployments internally, especially for high security contexts. Nothing could have been done from the victim's perspective to detect a malicious update with a valid signature fetched from a valid company from a valid update. Arguably, an audit period before applying the update could catch some issues, but then the attackers would just lay dormant longer. However, from an industry organization perspective, there's no good reason to have a fragile deployment like this. It doesn't matter what security mitigations are put in place with the individual host if they all have the same vulnerability or compromise. At the same time, it was seen with Heartbleed, Wary, not Petya, SystemD Resolve, GlibC, and so on. These devastating attacks can be mitigated, if not cut off entirely, by simply utilizing heterogeneous deployments. In the case of the U.S. government, perhaps they use Orion for some percentage of their service, but the rest of the fleet uses a competitor or floss implementation of the same type of tooling. Ideally, three plus different options for tackling each problem are used or needed, so no one attack can infiltrate an entire unknown percentage of your infrastructure. There are obvious drawbacks, such as needing more skilled staff, needing to coordinate and manage not only different software packages, but also potentially entirely separate compute platforms. It's fairly common practice in network operations centers for forever to keep a bad update from taking out production instead of entering a degraded state while the issue is diagnosed and remedied. The same approach would reduce the stress and concern with changes with the recent things with CentOS. Only threatening a potential reduction of productivity or increase of risk while a solution is being worked on instead of the temporary uncertainty of having all of your key infrastructure lose support in a matter of weeks or months. So I want to thank you, Nunix, for writing in. I agree with everything you just said. In fact, I, I believe I said, if I didn't say it, then I'll say it now. 
This is a very difficult, if not impossible, attack to defend against. That's precisely what makes it so terrifying is a we trust that when a reputable software manufacturer puts their signature on code, we can trust that that code comes from them. And in this particular case, that wasn't that wasn't true. But there's really nobody, anybody in the security industry doesn't really have an answer as to how we go about fixing that problem because obviously it was never SolarWinds' intention for their private, for their signing key to fall into the hands of a malicious attacker. And once that happens, there's very little that can be done to mitigate. Carl calls from California. Again, the number 855-450-6624, the email live at asknoahshow.com. Carl, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Hi, Noah. Uh, thanks for taking the call. I've got a question. Um, my mother, has, who's in her 90s, has been using the um, Ubuntu Mate uh, 2004 um, on a uh, desktop machine for about three years now. And um, there's, there's two things that are, that are happening. One is because it's a desktop, it doesn't have a built-in camera or microphone, so I've, I've added those things on. They seem to be kind of unreliable. Um, and when, you know, she'll, she'll start a, a Zoom call with her grand or great grandkids and, and the camera isn't working or something like that. The other thing is her vision is, um, not very good these days. And so I'm, I'm looking at getting her a bigger monitor and to kind of solve both problems. I'm, I'm thinking about a, getting her a laptop, um, and maybe hook it to a 24 or 27 inch monitor. Um, and the question is, uh, first off, uh, hopefully the, the built-in camera and mic would be more reliable than an external one on our desktop. Is that? Do you see that as being true? And, and does Linux have good support for cameras on, like a ThinkPad 480 or something like that? Yeah, they really do. Um, I've yet to see a laptop with an integrated camera that doesn't work on Linux. I've also yet to see a USB any any common USB camera there might be some esoteric brand out there or some with some super special features that isn't going to natively work on Linux but certainly any of the Logitechs yeah. the C920 C930s any of those are going to have perfect performance on Linux yeah it 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 certainly works most of the time the only problem is that I, I don't know why, but sometimes the camera doesn't come up and she'll have to reboot or, or power the thing down and back up again. And it's it's a cheapy camera off of eBay. And I, you know, the, the, it's frustrating for her. And mm -hmm. I, I uh, you know, rather, ra just rather get her something that's going to work more reliably than that. Um, but the other the other question I had is, you know, with a, with a ThinkPad or something like that, is it going to be able to boot up to the external monitor without having to use the integrated monitor and then switch after it's booted up. Sure. So uh, l l let's start. So uh, let me back up a little bit. As far as your camera goes, one of the things that you might try doing is separating. Is there any, are there any other USB peripherals plugged in uh, to that laptop other than the USB camera? Yeah, there's just a printer. That's the only other USB thing. What you might try doing if the laptop has uh, USB ports on a different, side of the laptop so like let's say you have the camera plugged into the right side if there are usb ports on the back or usb ports on the left hand side you could try separating the printer and the camera one of the things that we've noticed when we use obs with usb cameras is oftentimes there's so much bandwidth occupied by a 1080p camera that if you start to get too many usb devices plugged in you run out of usb bandwidth actually pretty quickly one of the workarounds for that is just to use one of the other controllers and typically on laptops 
they will have one controller on, you know, for the backside USBs or the or the right side USBs. So that's one thing you could try. As far yeah. as far as an actual, yeah. it's it's actually it's actually a desktop she's using right now. But I, oh. but I, I get your gist that um, maybe I try pl- plugging it into the front rather than the rear. Yeah, she's on a desktop right now because because she really needs the bigger monitor for her eyesight. Okay, well that's that's good. It's actually easier to solve that way. To be honest with you, so. Uh, you've got a couple of options. So th- you're right. You could try the front er- or the back and separate those up. The other thing that you can do if it's a desktop is you can actually purchase for about $100 a card that is a quad bus USB uh, PCI card. And so it's a PCI card that goes in and it gives a separate USB bus to every single port on the back. Now, I wouldn't buy that unless you absolutely knew that you were running out of USB bandwidth. And we don't know that. Um, that's just one thing that you could try. But if you arrive at that conclusion later on down the road... Um, that's a route you can go. Now, to answer your question about the external monitor and laptop, which is a great question, by the way, there are two ways that you can go about connecting a laptop uh, for your mother. The first, well, three ways, really. The first is the conventional way, which is you plug the monitor in, the USB keyboard, the USB mouse, and you just plug everything in, and then there's an external monitor. If you're using Linux and you're using something like Kubuntu, it will give you the option to specify a display setup. Yes, I want the laptop to be off. I want this monitor to be the primary one, and KDE will remember those settings. And so, no, you wouldn't necessarily have to swap back and forth. However, you can make it a little bit, depending on what your budget is, you can make it a little bit smoother. If you purchase a, uh, most ThinkPads, they're going to have Type-C on them, USB Type-C. And you can use something like a Dell WD-15 USB-C dock uh, that will give you docking capability and allow your mother to have one single cable that she plugs in and it will power the laptop. And then you'll be able to set the external display so she can close the lid and just use use it basically like it was a desktop. The only difference is you would be able to unplug the laptop. If you want to go one step better, and this is what I would do, Purchase a ThinkPad that has Thunderbolt built in, like a T480. Um, they're under a thousand bucks, or T490. Excuse me, uh, both have have it really. But if you if you can if you have the budget to do that and you go that route, it allows you to pair it with a Thunderbolt dock, and then your mom can have her monitor and her webcam and her sound system and her printer and a keyboard, mouse, and all that set up just like she ordinarily would. And that Thunderbolt cable plugs in and everything is going to be remembered and it'll just show up as if it was a desktop. Um, so that's the ideal way to dock a laptop, but it's also the most expensive way. Yeah. Okay. All right. Good. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll look into all that stuff. Um, I think that's a, that's a big help. Um, one other thing you would ask uh, a few weeks ago about people's backup strategies, and I yes. just wanted to relate what I use with with my mother's machine, and that is um, I use R-Sync over the Internet from her machine, and I have a an image on a, a local hard disk here and then uh, of, of her entire machine. And that way, if she calls up and says, I can't find a certain file, um, I can look on my local copy of it, and I can say, oh, okay, look in this directory here because I can do a, a find locally and, and say, okay, there it is. Um, and the other thing I do is I use Barrios, which is a fork of um, Bacula, and I use it locally here to to back up that image that I have of her machine. So the backup itself is all running locally, and I and I go to um, disks that I hard disks that I swap out with uh, you know removable drive SATA drive bays, and and uh, that way I can rotate the disks and and do all that stuff locally, and just use the image of her of her whole machine. Uh, as the source of the backup. Very cool. And I like that it's all being done with open source software. And in, in, uh, I'm assuming your mother is not terribly technical. 
And so this is a solution you've put in and, and, and clearly seems to work even for people that aren't familiar with how backup should work, yeah? Yeah, that's right. She's not involved in it at all. And uh, I use some auto SSH on her machine to connect into one of my machines that runs 24-7. So whenever she turns her machine on, uh, it makes an SSH connection over to my machine, and then I can do the R-Sync um, over the SSH tunnel from here without her even knowing that anything is going on. That's so awesome. I will pass on to you uh, something else. Conan Kudo in our chat room, you can join at... at um at geeklab.ninja, he points out that if it's a USB 2 webcam and it's plugged into a USB 3 port, try moving it to a USB 2 port. He's seen a lot of USB 2 webcams be finicky with a USB 3. So if you if the if the plug on the on the on the on the camera has a black uh, USB jack and the ports on your computer have a blue one, uh, you might try finding one of the black ports to plug that camera in. Okay, yeah, that's a good suggestion. I'll I'll, I'll give that a try next time I'm over there, and maybe that'll work better. Sounds okay. good. Well, thanks a lot, Noah. I really appreciate all the help. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for the call. one 450 noah That's 855-450-6624. Force the email live at asknoahshow.com. You can participate by joining live in our interactive Jitsi room. Again, you can get there by going to geeklab.ninja, participate in the chat, or jump in the voice channel. Our second email this hour comes uh, from... Corey. Corey writes in and says, Hi, Noah. I've been listening to your show since episode one, and I love every episode. I have a question about LVM and RAID. From everything I've researched, LVM looks like it makes RAID obsolete. If I'm understanding correctly, LVM will pool all of the hard drives attached to the system. So if you have three 12-terabyte drives, it can read 36 terabytes. And if one starts to fail, you can pop in a new drive, add it to the LVM volume, migrate all of the data off of the failing drive, and then rip it out. RAID, on the other hand, has a few different options, but doesn't pool the drives. It's mostly for redundancy and backup. I'd like to play around with the Raspberry Pi first, making a media server at home with LVM. Seems like the best way. For a way that devices on my network can all access my media, TVs, and movies, but I want the most storage I can get with the drives. I still have to have some redundancy. What program for the Pi can I use for a media server? And it's LVM, is that the answer? Once I have a solid grasp on how it works, I'll probably move uh, to a more stable and reliable media server using the same software. Mostly what I'd be using for the server is all of my Kodi boxes in the house. I would like for a way for all of them to easily grab the videos and play them on the TV that they're connected through the LAN. While my current setup works perfectly, I'm bored and I'm looking for a project. I'd love to know your thoughts. You're the first person I trust when it comes to tech. Thanks, Corey. So I love your thoughts, Corey. You're absolutely right. The vast majority of industry is moving from hardware RAID to software-based solutions. Now, I want to correct a couple of or a, a, a couple of misconceptions that might be coming up in some of the things you're reading. So first of all, RAID is definitely not a backup strategy, um, and neither is LVM for that matter. Both of those are they, they increase reliability and they reduce the the uh, the impact of a hardware failure. If you have a drive that dies, it's less impactful if you have redundancy. Um, but it's really not doing anything to back up your data. Um, as you as you kind of go as you kind of go through this, so let, let's answer one question at a time. So, what would you what software would you use uh, for on a Raspberry Pi? Well, I would start with Open Media Vault if I was looking to to throw something on a Raspberry Pi. Now, truthfully, if I was going into production and I wanted, if you were looking for a really good storage solution, I would implore you in the strongest possible way to go buy a used Dell Optiplex or a used uh, 
server that if and if you purchase a server, make sure that it doesn't have hardware RAID, or if it does, make sure that it can be disabled either by flashing um, an alternate firmware onto the uh, the cards, which is certainly the case with Dell servers. The perk cards, you can flash them with um, a special firmware that just allows them to directly access the disk, or you can buy those cards off of eBay for a, a few bucks. Um, or just purchase a, a, a you know like a Dell Optiplex and and place drives in there, uh, and I would use FreeNAS. And the reason that I would use FreeNAS is because even better than LVM is ZFS, and uh, LVM is great. We use LVM anytime we do a Red Hat or CentOS deployment, but if it's we're serious about data, it's ZFS all the way. Um, if you are stuck on LVM or if you really want something that you want to run on a Pi and you want to play with it, then Open Media Vault is definitely the way to go. Now. I have not done it myself, but I've looked into it, and Open Media Vault does support. They have a plugin for LVM, and so you once you have Open Media Vault installed, go to Plugins, um, click on or sorry, click on System, click on Plugins, list for all of the plugins, look for Open Media Vault LVM2, and install that plugin. I'll have a link for you in the show notes on how to set Open Media Vault up on a Raspberry Pi. But my suggestion. Uh, is would would honestly be to go with something like uh, FreeNAS. Now, Conan Kudo and Atypical Kernel in the chat room are are uh, are suggesting Unraid, which is also a very good piece of software. Um, I've played with it a couple of times. I've not. If I was if I was doing a hybrid infrastructure of virtualization and storage, I think that's where I would start to look more at something like Unraid. But I've not. I've not. I've not seen anything that really, just as a storage solution, that really puts Unraid above uh, FreeNAS for me. Um, also, a suggestion in the chat room from Conan Kudo. Hey, check out something uh, like ButterFS, perhaps. Now, that wouldn't necessarily be my recommendation, although I'm begrudgingly becoming more accepting of it, especially as Fedora trusts it. I trust it, right? Um, but yeah, I, I, any of those would be any of those would would work for you. I, I suggest sticking with ZFS. And you know, the thing is, ZFS becomes even more compelling today because of OpenZFS 2.0 and the fact that we're rebasing all of this code uh, and standardizing across the board. So it's not going to matter if you're on FreeBSD, if you're on FreeNAS, or if you're on Linux. All of those are going to start to work, and the the amount of redundancy that you get and the amount of features that you get with ZFS is, is kind of hard to pass up. So any you're on the right track to pursue software-based solutions over hardware RAID. Um, exactly what you're going to land on is, is will be dependent on, on, on your budget and, and, and other deciding factors. The other thing I would tell you is that your plan to use Kodi is flawless because it doesn't matter if you use Open Media Vault, doesn't matter if you use Unraid, doesn't matter if you use FreeNAS, Really, all you're doing is creating a Samba share and then mapping those in Kodi. So it's going to work with no matter. You could go buy a Netgear, um, you know, store appliance uh, NAS, and it would work just fine. Our third email comes in. Oh, well, <laughs> the chat room is very much on, in favor of RAID 1, RAID 10 are better options in most cases than using RAID 10 plus ButterFS. Compression will give you similar space to RAID 6. This is the chat room is great. I really appreciate you guys being here. Our third email comes in from we don't uh, have a name for this guy who gave it. That's fine. It says, hi, Noah. Happy New Year's. I have a question about using an old Android smartphone as a pseudo security camera around the outside of my house. Since my old Android phones would not be ideal for installing, say, operating systems like Lineage OS. Already tried this. I heard that maybe I can use the phones as a camera for around the house. I've heard of proprietary apps like IP webcam, but I'm not familiar with open source alternatives. So what 
open source and or approach would you recommend for this use case? By the way, I say pseudo security because if I really wanted it for mostly watching, I mostly want watching nature as well. And if it was for serious security, of course, I would have a purpose built setup. Thanks for the great work on your show, MXU. So uh, I, I am not familiar of with any open source apps that work well on Android for uh, for acting as a camera. They they exist. They all require a, a, a lot of manual configuration, and I've not had a lot of them um, work well, I guess, for lack of a better way to say that. Um, what I have had work pretty well is the Synology LiveCam app, which once installed is not open source. However, uh, you can download it off the Google Play Store, install it onto a phone, and then it appears in your Synology disk station as if you had uh, purchased a any other RTMP camera that can be added into surveillance station. Now, I want to point out a couple of things. You talk about this phone being a little old and a little outdated, and so it's not really usable as a phone anymore, and that's where your interest comes into using it as a secondary security camera. The only thing I would caution you about doing this is there's there's two sides of security. Obviously, the first one when we're talking about security cameras is who has access to those cameras, who has access to the footage, who can see those things from that perspective. And that's certainly one threat vector to consider. I don't necessarily believe that that's, I, I, you know, if you're putting it outside your house and you're mostly using it for nature, obviously it's not a concern. But what might be a concern is the, the security of the rest of your network. Remember, there's some 60 vulnerabilities that come out uh, in, in Android in, in a month. If those aren't patched and they sit for a year or two years, obviously they stack up. If somebody finds a vulnerability and is able to access that device, they ha even if they can't compromise the camera system, they may have access to your network. So I would consider that before I put anything on my network. And if I wasn't going to consider that, and if I was going to say to myself, I don't really care if the device gets updated because I'm, and then insert the reason why you don't care, VLANing it off, doesn't have access to the internet, whatever it is, you could probably do that with something like a GeoVision camera uh, and and the advantage of a geovision camera or like a less expensive access camera that's maybe under 200 bucks those the thing that you're going to get there is more weatherproofing on the camera itself so if you're putting this outdoors um, you know by the time you get done purchasing an enclosure so that it, your phone doesn't get wet um and then you'd have to deal with the awkward power situation because your phone isn't going to be poe so now you're going to have to have some sort of ac to type c or micro usb converter it just seems like it would be a lot more work than it's worth where I think those kinds of solutions fit best is like, I need to keep an eye on my kids while they're playing in their playroom and I don't have a camera there. So I'll take my cell phone, open that camera app and set it up here and then kind of watch it or as a baby monitor, those kinds of things I think really excel. Um, so if I were you, I, I would check out the, the Synology live cam app. Uh, I will, uh, I'll, I'll have to spin up a, um, another zone minor minder instance and see and, and reevaluate from time to time where we're at with open source solutions. But Right now, and where we've been for quite some time, despite how how many people ask me to the contrary, I, I wish there was a perfect open source solution that had apps, uh, mobile app support that could compete with traditional commercial devices, but it's just not there. And the thing about Synology is it works 100% with Linux. It works 100% without sort of some sort of subscription service or pay for it. It's just you buy the thing and you own it. You buy the license and you own them for life. You download the apps and you can, you, you can run them, the live cam app. I don't think there's a price to run the live cam app. So it, 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 it's open, it's just not open source. Open standards, I guess.
1-855-450-NO. That's 855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Our pick of the week this week is KDE Itinerary. KDE Itinerary is a digital travel assistant with a priority on protecting your privacy. You can learn more at apps.kde.org. And of course, we'll have a link for you in the show notes at podcast.asknoahshow.org. So, uh, podcast.asknoahshow.com. So, the KDE itinerary app has a timeline view of unified itinerary travel schedule with automatic trip grouping. It supports train, bus, flight bookings, as well as hotel, restaurant reservations, and even rental car reservations. It supports automatic booking data extraction for various input formats performed locally on your device, not some cloud service. Real-time delay platform change information for trains, a selection of alternative train connections on uh, on unbound tickets or missed connections, and local ground transportation, navigating between elements of your itinerary. This is so cool. And the, uh, the, the thing that is exciting to me, aside from the fact that there are these really awesome apps that have a focus on security and privacy, is what you're seeing with things like KDE Itinerary, when the app developers release this app, this app, obviously they are aware that a lot of people are going to want to use something like this on mobile. And so obviously it's available for things like Plasma Mobile as well as the Linux desktop. And so as I see this stuff come out and as I see it roll out, it really it, it speaks to a, a more overall narrative that we see this happening, right? Proprietary works, 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 works in five, ten years, and they buy and they grow and they buy and they grow and they buy and they grow, and eventually they achieve success. And open source, what you see is they look over there and go, those guys are doing this thing. We need a tool that can do that too. And even though they start seven, eight years later than the proprietary solution, they they definitely had the get-go, the open source solution manages to climb ahead faster, at least in terms of functionality and, and features that we care about from a privacy and security standpoint. And so uh, I love the fact that whereas the, the, a competing proprietary app would have to release a version for mobile, release a version for desktop, release a version for Mac, release a version for Windows, release a version for web, KDE Itinerary is just, hey, we're going to release this thing. And guess what? We've already figured out how to be portable with apps. That's not an issue. And um, so... Apple thinks they're pioneering this thing with this M1 and universal apps, but they're not. They're late to the game. Flat packs, snap packs, app image have been here for a long time. Um, KDE itinerary. Make sure to check it out. Our gadget of the week, the main gear vector Two gaming laptop. So little backstory on this. I am not a gamer. I don't play one on TV. However, I have routine requests from people that, Hey, I want to go and play a game. Do you want to play this game with me? Now, the problem is I had a gaming desktop because that's the most cost-efficient way to have a gaming computer, at least I thought. The problem is it just sits and collects dust because I'm not going to take a gaming desktop and a gaming monitor and a gaming keyboard and a gaming mouse and all the things that you need to play games with me everywhere I go. And so what that's amounted to is I take my, my, uh, my I think, a Logitech 710 mouse and connect it to whatever laptop I'm using and play. And of course, the performance I get on gaming on my on my ThinkPad is not uh, is not terrific. So I started kind of looking around at other gaming laptops. And a good friend of mine was in town, and we were hanging out over the weekend. And he bought a Main Gear Vector Two gaming laptop. And I said, "Well, as I say to anybody who puts a laptop in my front of my face, hey, let's put Linux on that." And so we did. And 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 the, this this thirteen hundred and forty nine dollar laptop, which is point seven eight inches thick and only weighs 4.16 pounds, packs an i7-1075 and an NVIDIA GeForce RTX 
2060. I looked up the RTX. I'm not again not a gamer, so don't know a lot about the the history of these cards and 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 kind of where they're at. But I just pulled up a picture of the RTX 2060. That's a massively large graphics card that they've somehow managed to fit inside of a laptop that's barely any bigger than my uh, than my ThinkPad. Now, there is one, uh, it, it also c- comes with 16 gigs of RAM, a one terabyte NVMe drive, a four cell battery of 4,000 milliamp hours, and a 1080p 144 hertz beautiful display. I mean, this thing is really fantastic. And again, everything works out of the box with Linux the trackpad, Wi Fi, suspend, uh, the display, the mouse, the, everything. It's a right click, the touchpad. Everything works out of the box. It was fantastic. Now, the things that I don't like. First of all, because it's a gaming laptop and requires a tremendous amount of power, it doesn't do power over Type-C. And so they have a special, very large power brick that you have to connect to a, a, a traditional barrel port on the back. Um, so that's that's knock number one. Knock number two is this. The laptop, being a good gaming laptop, means that it basically re- is required to be plugged in all the time. And so you don't even get full performance if you disconnect it, even on, even on a full battery. Uh, it will degrade the performance by not having connected to an AC outlet. And so is it a perfect laptop? No. The largest thing that I thought it was missing is it only has a USB-C connector. It does not support Thunderbolt. And of course, that kind of kills it for me as a permanent gaming laptop because I can't use it with an eGPU dock. I can't use it with any sort of dock. Um, I just have to game off of the laptop. Now, there might be a rationale out there that says, well, if you wanted to dock it, why not just use a desktop to begin with? Um, but Alas, I would have really liked to see a Thunderbolt on it. Nevertheless, most gaming laptops that I'm looking at are thousands and thousands of dollars. This thing comes in at $1,349, so it's clearly in that budget category. But unlike the other budget, like the HP Omen and and some of the cheaper Dells, uh, this really feels like a premium gaming laptop. It feels very, very good. And uh, it would appear that some of the people in the chat room are also... uh, are also calling it a gaming battle station. So uh, it is the Main Gear Vector 2 gaming laptop. It is available for $1,349 and runs flawly, flawlessly with Linux. In the news this week, the KDE team has plans for 2021 and they're shaping up to be pretty darn cool. So uh, KDE has come out and said, hey, in 2021, here are some of the things that we're looking to accomplish. And uh, one of the big things is fingerprint reader support throughout the entire KDE Plasma experience. Now, anybody who's been on Linux for any amount of time knows that stuff like this is always on the periphery, right? If we can log in with a password and the computer goes to standby every time and it comes back out, we don't worry about things like the fingerprint reader. That would be a nice toy someday. But it's first of all, there's not a lot of security in it. And second of all, uh, it's, it, it's the kind of luxury that we can live without. Now, the other side of that is this. As the FIDO2 standard continues to become more prolific and more and more companies pledge to adopt it, um, this kind of thing is going to become more important. If you're not familiar with what the FIDO2 standard is, the FIDO2 standard is basically passwordless authentication. The idea is, in a nutshell, is this. If I can reset a password by sending an email why would I not just send an email to have somebody log in? But wait, if I'm going to send an email to just log in, why have it tied to an antiquated system that isn't built for security like email? Why not build it to a hardware device like a token? But wait, if you're going to build it for a hardware device for a token, why would you tie it to one specific kind of token like a YubiKey? Why not make it available for all authentication tokens? So you could do a camera facial recognition, a fingerprint reader, a YubiKey, a NitroKey, whatever, right? And so that's the idea behind FIDO2. 
In order for that to work, the idea is that you're going to have these authentication devices built into computers and phones and everything else. And so some people are going to use the thumbprint reader. Some people like me are going to use the YubiKey. Some people are going to use the you know facial recognition. But whatever you do, you'll have the ability to authenticate that way. KDE wants to make this front and center. So they want to allow you to use the fingerprint reader to lock, log into the computer, unlock the screen, chaos, policy kit. All of those things are going to work with the fingerprint reader. A, no, a new refocus on Wayland. They're aiming for some serious concentrated Wayland work this year, and they're going to continue through 2021. And finally, Plasma Wayland session will be usable for an increasing number of people's production workflows. Now, the developers also plan to improve the look and feel of the Plasma's default breeze theme, and so you can expect something super modern and super awesome. I also hope it's super dark mode. They're going to replace the celebrated kickoff app launcher with a newer, fresher replacement. I personally don't have any problems with the launchers. I find them to be quite wonderful, but I'm excited to see what the KDE team has in store for us in 2021. Cobbird 1.3 has been released. Cobbird is a free open source software compatible with most Linux distributions. It is a primarily a Twitter client and the with Cobbard 1.3, we're seeing improved DM support and video uploading. So now you'll have the opportunity to see media shared in a direct message, as well as links, hashtags sent in those messages. They've all become clickable. It's also possible to delete DMs to load older DMs and send images as DMs in Cobbard. Cobbard 1.3 also supports video uploads to tweets. Uh, you can do up to one video per tweet and improves the upload handling of animated and non-animated GIFs. It also introduces a more accessible approach to loading replied to tweets. <clears throat> Starting with Matrix, uh, we got into Matrix back at self because we wanted the ability to connect with people in a free and open source decentralized way. I got to doing self weekend. We had the stream going because that was here for ask Noah show, but what we didn't have uh, was the real time group collaboration, virtual meetup type thing. And it took me literally 24 hours doing self for one night to realize that that was a major component missing from self. I don't care so much. I mean, I do, I shouldn't say that. I do care about presenting the information and getting those speakers out to you so that you can hear what's going on in the open source world. But I care even more about building the relationships with the individual because that's ultimately what matters to me. And so we, I set up a, I set up a matrix instance against really the advice of everyone around me was saying, this is not ready for production. And I'm like, yeah, but it's so cool. I want to play with it. And it worked out to be great. In fact, it worked out to be so great that we I haven't been able to pry myself away from it. And I've since gotten sucked deep into the rabbit hole. As of January 2021, AltaSpeed Technologies has officially switched over to EMS. EMS is the paid version of Element, where the people who wrote the Element client host some of the best uh, Synapse servers or Dendrite servers, whatever it is that they run, and it works flawlessly. Um, and the nice thing about this is then we can then treat Element just like Slack or Microsoft Teams. We pay a people and they do a thing. It just happens to be like a sixth of the cost of literally every other messaging software out there. By the way, it's also open source. By the way, it's also encrypted. And I will give a plug to the EMS team. When I signed up for, first of all, the sign up is, is brain dead simple. You go to element.io, you click on plans, you sign up for one of their dirt cheap plans, which I think for our entire company is costing us like $10 a month. That's how cheap it is. 
the the way that they set all of it up is you go through and fill out this online form, which takes five seconds, and then they spin up your instance right there. There's a little button to rebuild your instance if you ever need to. So the actual onboarding was super smooth, but it only got better from there because once the element instance was up, I messaged their support and I was like, hey, what if I want to move it to my own infrastructure? What does that look like? Because let's just get this out of the way now. If you're going to be you know, obstinate about it, I'll just go host it myself and I'll not use your paid instance. And the guy replies, yeah, we'd be happy to do that. We can move it over for you. You can move it over yourself. Would you just like your signing key? What would work best for you? And I'm like, this is fantastic. So uh, we got everything set up. I did request a signing key. So if I ever want to do that, I have, the, I have everything I need to, to just move my instance over to my own thing if I want. But working with their team was fantastic. Above and beyond that, they have an entire sales team dedicated to making sure that if you want to purchase features or if you want to fund features that are in development, they have sales reps that can that can answer and say, here's how much it would cost to do this thing or to fix that thing. Absolutely fantastic. And a big feature that we didn't think we'd end up using, but now we use it daily, Jitsi. Turns out Jitsi may have some some things to work around. But the Matrix team works very, very closely with the Jitsi team, and it turns out they're making a ton of progress. And so we now have a Jitsi instance inside of our Matrix instance that we just click on the conference and people jump in and out all day. It's been unbelievable, but it's about to get even better. Quote, imagine you could physically step into your favorite FOSS's projects, chat rooms, mailing list, or forms and talk in person to other community members, contributors, or commenters. Imagine if you could see a project lead show off their latest work in front of a packed audience and then chat and brainstorm with them afterwards. Maybe even grab a beer. Imagine as a developer, you could suddenly meet a random subset of your users and hear and understand their joys and woes in person. This year, things are, of course, going to be done a bit different. FOSDOM is exactly that. That is what the FOSDOM conference is. It happens in Europe. It's one of the largest open source conferences out there. And thankfully, FOSDOM 2020 snuck in a few weeks before COVID-19 pandemic. However, FOSDOM 2020, uh, sorry, FOSDOM 2021, which will happen on February 6th and 7th, the conference will inevitably have to happen online. FOSDOM will have its own dedicated, ready for it? Matrix server at Fosdom.org, hosted by EMS along with a ton of Jitsis, acting as the social backbone for the event. We provide official bridges to IRC, XMPP, and other chat systems, giving as much openness and choice as possible. If folks want to participate via Freenode or XMPP, they certainly can. We've built a large virtual community. Keep in mind things like Mozilla, KDE, and Matrix itself. We spend a lot of time improving widgets and giving the ability of people to embed Web apps into chat rooms, letting you add live streams, video conferences, schedules, Q&A, dashboards, etc., augmenting a plain old chat room into a much richer virtual experience that can hopefully capture the semantics and requirements of event like FOSDOM. So the way this is going to work, attendees can lurk as read-only guests in, in dev rooms without actually having to set up an account. Or they can, of course, use their existing Matrix, IRC, or XMPP account. Every dev room will track every dev, dev room and track will have its own chat room where the audience can hang out, view the live stream, and participate in the dev room using the normal Fosdom video live stream system. There'll also be a backstage room and a track for coordinating between dev room organizers and the speakers. The talks themselves are going to be pre-recorded to minimize the risk of a disaster, but each talk will have a question and answer session at the end which will be a live Jitsi broadcast from the speaker who will host and relay their questions from the dev room. Each talk will have a dedicated room as well, where after the official talk slot, the audience can pop in and out 
with the speaker more informally. If they're available by text and or moderated Jitsi during the talk, this room will act as the stage for the speaker and host to watch the live stream and conduct their question and answer session. Every stand will also have its own chat room, an optional live Jitsi and live stream. There will also be BOF and other ad hoc events, so folks can get involved with both chat and video to get a close to the real event as possible, even though it's unlikely we'll capture the unique atmosphere conditions of K-building, which may or may not be a bug. There'll also be a set of official support, social, etc. rooms where folks can do where folks can create their own. Unfortunately, folks will have to bring their own beer. All of this is going to be orchestrated by, get this, a matrix bot, which is rapidly taking shape over github.com slash matrix-org conference bot. They're building a conference bot. How cool is this? It's, it's responsible for orchestrating the hundreds of required rooms, setting up the right widgets, permissions, setting up bridges, IRC, XMPP, and keeping everything in sync with the official live FOSDEM schedule. This is absolutely unreal. I, if you would have taken me back to June and told me the level of explosion that we were going to watch Element and Matrix go through, mind you, this thing it barely, this thing got off the ground essentially in 2017. That's when, that's when all of this started to kind of take shape. And from 2017 until 2020, they built, 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 built. 2020, they come out, it's maybe 2019. It was like a year out of beta when we started using it. And it showed there was a lot of rough edges. And in just a few months' time, we have just watched them skate to infinity and beyond. I mean, it's been absolutely fantastic to watch this take off. Now, there's still some work to do. If you have developing skills, then they need your help. Folks on XMPP often complain that Bitfrost... Uh, which is the matrix to XMPP bridge doesn't support MEMS, meaning that if XMPP lose their connection, they lose scrollback. Now, they're not going to have time to fix this themselves in time for this event. So this would be a great time for an XMPP folks uh, who grok XMPP to come get involved and help ensure the best possible XMPP experience. It'd be really nice to be able to help render a nice schedule widget for each dev room and embed the overall schedule to the support rooms. The current HTML schedules are available at fosdom.org slash 2021 slash schedule slash day slash Saturday and, and fosdom.org slash 2021 slash schedule slash room slash V collab. It doesn't exactly fit if somebody wrote that thing out, which renders them at, let's say, 2.5 aspect ratio so that they can fit nicely on the side of a chat room. And that would be awesome. Uh, while we'll bridge all of the official rooms to Freenode, it would be even nicer if people could just hop straight into any room on the FOSDEM server or beyond via IRC, exp- effectively exposing the whole thing as an IRC network for those who prefer IRC. Now, we have a project to do this. It's called Matrix-IRCD, but it certainly needs some love and polish before it could be used for something as big as this. If you like Rust and you know Matrix, then please jump in and get involved. If you just want to follow along or help out, then we've created three general rooms for the discussion over at fosdem-matrix, colon, matrix.org. I will have a link for you in the Geek Lab, as well as it would be awesome to have many useful bots and widgets as possible to help things along. Now, uh, I, to me, this is very cool. It's very cool because we are using, you've taken an open source software that came, again, this model, years late to the game as compared to Slack, uh, and 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 XMPP and IRC and all the other things that really compete on that line. And what you've watched is a very slow but very intentional path forward. Matthew makes sure that he is working with the kind of people that can write the kind of checks to continue to support the development of this scale anytime there's an opportunity uh, from a government, from a school, 
from a project anywhere from something small in the community to something very large in government. Matthew Hodgkins right there to say, hey, I think Matrix can fit that solution. Oh, you're the EU and you're looking to try to find an interoperable way for different platforms to communicate. Matrix is your answer. Oh, you're looking for secure decentralized communication for your government. Matrix is your answer. Oh, you want to be able to have education in Germany? 500,000 users they got signed up in Germany for this education system. That completely dwarfs the Slack's like 350,000 uh, users that 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 uh, that they got um, as the default messaging service for IBM. So. From 2017, Element has done amazing things, and I've only been watching this for about a, like half of a year, a year, and I'm blown away. So if you had any intention of, if you haven't signed up for Element yet, you really should do so. You can, you can do so by going to element.linuxdelta.com. We have a paid instance that, uh, or a hosted instance that we will let you use for free. It's much faster than matrix.org because it is, uh, it's not populated by as many users. We host the show every week on that uh, server. And thanks to Federation, you'll be able to join Fosdem um, by registering for an account. Of course, you're welcome to register for an account at the Fosdem server too, but I'm not sure if that's a permanent thing or if it's just uh, around for the event. Again, open phones this hour, 855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624. The email, live at asknoahshow.com. That, uh, that is the number to make your voice heard. Become a part of the program. LG is sending data. The LG Smart Ad Analysis uh, user favorite programs uh, is, is, is a feature that's built into LG Smart TVs. And the idea is that the LG Smart TV offers ads for useful advertisements and performance reports. Now, part of the problem is that this option is turned on in system settings, and it's called, quote, collection of watching info. But it's defaulted to on and gives the user no idea what this feature actually does. Unlike every other feature on the TV that has a balloon help to describe what it's doing, this feature does not. But it turns out if you connect Wireshark to it and look at what it's actually doing, the information is is being collected is what channel you're on and what what file names are on your USB stick. Worse yet, it turns out even if you turn that option off, doesn't seem to matter. The information is sent back unencrypted and in the clear to LG every time you change the channel. And even if you've gone to the trouble of changing that setting off, it's still collecting that viewing information and it's still sending it to LG. So at this point, the security researcher, the uh, the post for which we'll have linked in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com says, I was even more disturbed with this finding of the packet data dumps. I noticed that even the file names were being posted to LG's servers and the file names were stored on my external USB hard drive. To demonstrate this, I created a mock AVI file and copied it onto the USB stick. Um. I renamed the file to make sure it had a unique file name that I could spot very easily and see that the data was different. This was unlikely to come from a broadcast source, and sure enough, here it was. And so as he looked in Wirecast, his very unique uh, file name showed up in the, in the uh, uh, Wireshark packets that were, uh, that were being captured. So he was kind enough to list all of the domains that LG is using uh, as their... I, to, to, to collect this data. And so the argument that he makes is ultimately, regardless of what LG chooses to do, you can choose to block all of those domains at your router. And then that essentially kills any hope LG has 
of collecting this data. The thing that the the uh, the reason I bring this up on the show is is twofold. Every once in a while, I like to I like to have actual examples that can be linked in the show notes that that the average person can look at and go, that's why I don't trust smart devices because they do stuff like this. And I'm not some paranoid tinfoil hat guy that walks around going everything in the world is spying on me. But at the same time, when I purchase a TV and I connect it to my Wi-Fi and all of a sudden it decides that it's appropriate because I plug my flash drive in to start sending the file names of every Everything that's on my flash drive, I'm sorry, it's not. And the I was talking with uh, the technical director from our church about this because him and I share a frustration that these TVs come out with an ARM processor, and within a year or two, the ARM processor has effectively doubled in processing power, and so the old one has basically become obsolete. Thus, all of the apps have been updated to take advantage of the newer, more powerful processor. And so if you have an older TV, your smart apps, one by one, either stop working or just significantly slow down. And then on top of that, LG does stuff like this. And then LG is not alone. I think Vizio had a, had a, a worse lawsuit where they were actually recording people. Uh, microphones were recording people. But... Uh, when when I see this stuff come out, it's it's it it is again confirmation bias for me that when I order a smart TV, which is getting harder and harder not to buy, I don't connect it to the network. I don't connect it to Wi-Fi. I I don't. My TV doesn't need to know where I am. My TV doesn't need to know what my file names are. LG certainly doesn't need that information. And I would love to hear from an LG associate how collecting the file names off of a USB drive inserted into the TV or paying attention to what channels people are watching helps them build a better display device. If my channels aren't loading or I'm not interested in the content that's on those channels, that's between me and my cable provider. It has nothing to do with the hardware manufacturer of my display device. But LG doesn't seem to care about that. What LG seems to care about is collecting information and then using that information to sell more TVs to their customers. The part that I don't get is how this helps them understand what their customers want. Oh, they, a lot of people are playing AVI files. I guess we should support more of that. The TV shouldn't be doing that. The media player should be doing that. The computer connected to the TV should be doing that. The streaming player should be doing that. But the TV shouldn't be doing that. And it certainly shouldn't be collecting information. And frankly, I, while I'm the last person to, to advocate for government regulations on stuff, it is completely unacceptable, entirely unacceptable for a company to put a button that gives the user the impression that you can turn something on or off and that button does not actually make a change. And it's why I'm quick to point out when people say, well, there's an option to turn that off in the settings. No, 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 no. There's a UI option to request that that not happen. That's what you're doing. I have no idea if it actually shuts it off or not. I just know that I tapped the button and I know that the button was labeled that it wouldn't do that. But this story about LG smart TVs exemplifies to me and anybody listening that that's not always the case and that those buttons don't always do what they say they're going to do. So if you are in the market for a smart TV, uh, you certainly should shut those features off. I highly recommend not connecting your smart TV to the internet. I highly recommend if you're going to purchase a smart TV because you don't have, because there's no other options and oftentimes there isn't, then the next thing is just don't connect it to the internet. And even that's going to get that's going to become more and more difficult as time progresses because as IPv6 comes online and the idea is that every device has a has an IP address depending on how valuable that data is and this is probably not going to be the case with TVs because they're not they're not expensive enough but any manufacturer can uh can will have more access to those devices because they'll be able they won't be going through NAT or at least conceivably. 
Again, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 855 450 The email, live at asknoahshow.com. Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter and Square, isn't happy about a new proposed cryptocurrency regulation. He's emphasized how the regulation would hurt Square, a financial services company, in a later posted to the company website. Now, in October, Square uh, bought $50 million in Bitcoin. And this company has also heavily invested in the cryptocurrency ecosystem. So Square has plenty of skin in in the cryptocurrency game. And as if you're you're not living under a rock, then you've seen that Bitcoin has shot through the roof in pricing and it's attracted a bunch of new attention to this. And this, of course, has brought up the age-old question about regulations that come with cryptocurrency because uh, it can be used for nefarious purposes. The problem is, as Jack Dorsey points out, the regulations will create an unnecessary friction and potentially a perverse incentive for cryptocurrency customers to avoid regulated entities for cryptocurrency transactions. The regulation proposed by the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, also known as FinCEN, would require financial institutions like Square to collect personal information about all of the parties involved in a cryptocurrency transaction. You can read a deep dive, uh, and they have it linked in the sh- we'll have it linked in the show notes. But the more important requirement is for financial institutions to collect the name and physical address of both parties of any large transaction that they're involved in. So the regulation aims to help prevent illegal uses of crypto- cryptocurrency, such as drug trafficking, money laundering, and international terrorists and financing. But Dorsey's major complaint is that it would create an unnecessary friction between cryptocurrencies and financial institutions, which could lead to those perverse incentives that he talks about. To put it bluntly, if the regulations were implemented as written, then Square would be required to collect unreliable information and data about people who have opted into their service or signed up as their customers. And so what Dorsey argues is essentially that the regulation could end up driving customers to use non-custodial wallets or services outside the U.S. to transfer their assets more easily. In other words... When it's open source, when we can't actually stop or control people from doing something, then there's very little reason to put regulations in place because people just will ignore them and go around the, and go around and do it. There's nothing stopping you from having a local wallet on your computer. Nothing stopping me from having a local wallet on my computer. And there's nothing stopping me from transferring bitcoins to you. In fact, the whole idea behind trustless currency was that there was no central party that you can go after and say, hey, we want to do a thing, so we need you to enforce this thing. Can't be done. Shouldn't be done. Won't be done. They uh, cryptocurrency is not something you should invest in. And I, I've, I've, I think I said that a few weeks ago. Even with where Bitcoin is, and all the people that have written into the program or called in and said, "Hey, I, you know, this has been really fun for me, and I've made a lot of money, or I bought a lot of things," it's still not a good investment. But the reality is this: the we have we, the boat has passed. To where if we were going to regulate this, we should we should have already been on that boat. Because even if tomorrow Bitcoin became regulated, all of the other cryptocurrency would not be regulated. Um, and so they would have to regulate cryptocurrency as a whole. And how can you crypt- regulate cryptocurrency as a whole when you can't control cryptocurrency as a whole? The entire thing is uh, is going to be interesting to watch closely. It's going to be even it's it's going to be further interesting to watch as the price of Bitcoin continues to climb and as other competition comes online. But the reality is when a father, and this is the example that, that, that Jack Dorsey uses, when a father uh, transfers Bitcoin to his daughter, that shouldn't necessitate a company collecting information about either of those two parties. And the way that this, the way my understanding that this law is written, that's exactly what's going to happen. But cryptocurrency has won. It has one because of the technical advantages. It's just much faster to conduct a transaction. It's much faster to get your job done.
And there are things that you can fundamentally do with cryptocurrency that you just can't do with other currencies. And they're just now starting to try to fill those gaps. Everything that everybody that's so excited about Samsung Pay and Apple Pay and paying from the watch and stuff like that. We, those of us that were in cryptocurrency were doing this back in 2000, you know, uh, 12, 2013. As companies were coming online and were willing to accept Bitcoin for payments on stuff, uh, we were able to do that with our phone. And it was really exciting back then to find somebody that would take a thousand Bitcoin or whatever for a pizza or whatever the price was back then. Not so much anymore. Now, you, now you're buying cars with a single Bitcoin, $20,000. Hey, thanks for hanging out. The show is recorded every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. You can join us live by going to asknoahshow.com. All of the articles and references that we don't get time to get to or that I've referenced in the show, those are available to you online 24-7 at podcast.asknoahshow.com. It's the end of the show. The Cast Noah Show continues online. Check us out on YouTube. Follow me on Twitter, at Colonel Linux. The show, at Ask Noah Show. We'll see you next Tuesday, 6 p.m. Central.